Welcome to the Real Life Show Living with a Chronic Illness. We are your hosts, Cassie and Chelsea. I'm Cassie, a single mom living with a chronic illness who is extremely passionate about living a full and happy life. And I'm Chelsea, a mindset coach that has a passion for helping people learn to put themselves first and be the best version of themselves each and every day. We came together to create Spoonies Unite, an uplifting community that offers resources, guidance, and support so you can live your best life while giving you the space to be yourself, be heard, and feel understood. We hope that by providing education from experts, we help Spoonies and their loved ones thrive. This show is not only for those who live with a chronic illness, but their friends, family, spouses, and just anyone else existing on the earth. Our goal is to normalizing having a chronic illness by sharing the real stories with real people and show the world how relatable those everyday struggles can be. There's a little something in here for everyone. And of course, thank you to our patrons for your continued support making this possible. If you love our show and want to get some extra goodies, go to patreon.com slash the real spoonies unite. Enjoy the show. Hi, everybody, and welcome to The Real Life Show, Living with a Chronic Illness. Today, we have a sweet freaking episode ready for you, and we're so excited about it. We are interviewing Sarah Marie Ramey, who is also known as Wolf Larson. Sarah is a writer and musician, aka Wolf Larson. You can look her up on Spotify and anywhere else that music is, and it's great music. And Sarah lives in Washington, D.C. She is a graduate of Bowdoin College in 2003, received an MFA in creative nonfiction writing from Columbia University, and worked for President Obama in his 2008 campaign. She is also the recipient of a 2018 Whitting Grant. Her music has been featured on NPR, and her debut book, The Lady's Handbook for Her Mysterious Illness, has just been published by Doubleday in March of this year, 2020. The book is a memoir and a manifesto for those struggling with invisible, misunderstood, and dismissed illnesses. And for the last 17 years, Sarah herself has been living with her own serious, painful, and often disabling mysterious illness. Her mission is to make the invisible visible and to let Womies, women with mysterious illnesses, know that they are valid, they are worthy, and they are not alone. Cassie and I have both read Sarah's book, and to say that we love it is kind of an understatement. We're both massively obsessed with this book. We think it is an incredibly important read for pretty much everyone on the planet, and we talked about that with Sarah in this episode. But really, this book and just Sarah's experience is pretty amazing. The amount of work, love, and care that went into all the research that Sarah did, sharing her own story, and just giving validation and hope to anyone living with a mysterious, invisible, chronic illness. It just, it's a very moving story that we highly recommend that you read and check out. And to help you do that, we are doing a giveaway with this episode. So uh, this episode comes out on July 15th, 2020. And so from then until August 1st, 2020, you can take a screenshot of you listening to the episode. You can share it on Facebook or Instagram in your feed or your stories. Tag us at The Real Spoonies Unite and you will get entered into the drawing to get a copy of Sarah's book. If you're extra excited about this book, about as excited about it as we are, and you want extra chances to win, you can earn um, additional uh, chances into the drawing by taking screenshots of our other episodes, sharing those on social media, tagging us again. Uh, You can also leave a review for our podcast. Just make sure that when you type the review, before you press send, you take that screenshot and you send that to us. And our email is hello at therealspoodiesunite.com. Send us that screenshot because if you send it, then we don't get to see the review for a really long time. We want to make sure that you get credit for um, that extra additional drawing entry. So we are so excited about this episode. We are so excited about Sarah's book and we hope that you all enjoy it. And you can head on over to our Instagram for the full details for our giveaway too. Hello, 
everyone, and welcome to today's episode of The Real Life Show, Living with a Chronic Illness. Cassie and I are super excited about our guest today. We have Sarah Ramey with us. She is the author of The Lady's Handbook to Her Mysterious Illness, and it is one of Cassie and I's absolute favorite books of all time. We both love it, and we are so excited to have Sarah with us. So thank you for taking time to talk to us today, Sarah. Oh my God. That's such a nice introduction. Thank you very much for having me. (laughs) Awesome. Well, Sarah, you have quite the story and you go through it in your book. I know as I was reading it, there was lots of moments where I would hear about something that happened and I'd be like, oh God, that's awful. And then less than a hundred pages later, I was again going, oh my God, it's happening again. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Or something else is happening. And just can you give our listeners a little bit about what your story is? and kind of what's brought you to where you are today. Yeah, so it is true that the nature of my story is it's like one trapdoor opens and then another trapdoor opens underneath mm-hmm. that and then another one after that. And But I, I've found that that's not unusual for uh, people like me. And so the, the book is about my story, but then also about uh, this larger group of women that I found that are just like me that have, you know, quote, mystery illnesses. So chronic fatigue syndrome, fibromyalgia, Ehlers-Danlos, postural orthostatic tachycardia, autoimmune diseases. There's a there's a family of illnesses that if you are familiar with it, if you're in that community already, you already know this like long laundry list of syndrome names. And so um, so the story, my story is, uh, it, it is a little complicated. Basically, I was, so I'm 39 now and I was 22 at the time I was a senior in college and I was basically totally normal. I mean, I had some minor health issues, but really, really minor. And I was super active. I was like the singer in a band and the head of an acapella group and directing the musical and just like really, I mean, really active. (laughs) And so, but I had um, a UTI that just was very persistent and wouldn't go away. So I finally had to go to a urologist who... Uh, wanted to perform a procedure that's called a urethral dilation, which is supposed to be not such a big deal. Not, he said, you know, maybe it's a little bit painful, but you know, nothing serious. You'll be fine. We'll do it right here in the, in the office. And so I believed him that that was what was going to happen. And I, you know, saddle up for this procedure and uh, it is uh, not painless. It is the single most painful thing that I've, or one of the most painful things I've ever experienced. And uh, it's basically, I won't, I won't go into the details, but it's extremely painful. I leave the office. I'm in a tremendous amount of pain. And within 12 hours, I had woken up and I have a really high fever and I'd become septic. And so I had to go be hospitalized. And uh, my parents are both doctors. And so they understood kind of the, the broad strokes of what's going on. So basically, one day, I've just got this UTI. The next day, I'm in the hospital. I have sepsis, which, you know, is a life-threatening problem. And I have tremendous pelvic pain, and I just feel horrible. And, but we all just thought, well, this is a, a terrible thing that's happened. No one knows, you know, what what could have happened here? You know, what could have transpired? Because the doctor was very adamant that it was a totally normal procedure and he didn't understand why this was happening. And so we all just thought, sure, it'll it'll go away. It'll bounce back. You know, you're a young person, you know, like anybody, you know, something bad happens to you. You assume that you're just going to get better after you go to the doctor. And so, um, but they sent me back to college with an IV line of antibiotics for a month. And this is important, I think, for later. And so I go back to college and I have tremendous pelvic pain that I did not have before. I'm sleeping constantly. I'm sleeping like 18 hours a day. I feel like I have the flu all the time and my muscles are aching like all over. And so, and I am like clearly not getting better. I'm kind of getting worse. And sort of the the long and short of it is that really over the next year, I went, you know, instead of going just spring break with my friends that in senior year, you know, I had to go home and see like 10 more doctors. And instead of, you know, going to get a job that summer, I just spent the entire summer seeing doctors and 
basically everyone, and they're all the top shelf doctors because my parents are doctors. And so everyone is trying to figure out, you know, what has happened to this young woman. I'm like sick all the time, horrible pelvic pain, colon stopped working. And no one can figure it out. All the tests are run. Everything comes back negative, negative, negative. And eventually uh, there's this one neurologist who, who really uh, some, summed up what would be the conclusion of basically every doctor to come after that, which is this one neurologist who did this horrific test that was negative. And at the end of it, uh, he, he sits down with me and my parents in the same office and looking at my parents and not me, he looks over his glasses and he says, well, I think that uh, what we can safely conclude here is that like so many young women her age, her problem is psychological. And, <sighs> that made me so yeah. mad when I read it. I, I got like, very upset. Yes. And so, and that, you know, <laughs> really what the book is about is that that experience should be rare and that is profoundly it's not common it is like everyone I know has had Mm -hmm. an experience like that in the medical system especially if you have uh certainly this family of illnesses the 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 quote mystery illnesses or autoimmune disease um but but so many women that that don't even fall in this category um you know have read this or read you know a piece by me and are like yeah I have that exact same experience or talk to me and, and it's just it's it's a an astounding number of people who all it, it, I have to say it reminds the thing it reminds me of the most is the me too movement it's this thing that should be rare extremely rare but actually it's just a huge number of people put their hand up when you actually bring it into the light and and so, yeah, and so in terms of the rest of my story, it's basically just like a long series of tragedies of just trying to figure out what was wrong. Uh, I became extremely ill, horrifically bedridden at, at multiple times. The pain situation got much worse. I was eventually diagnosed with uh, complex regional pain syndrome, extremely painful pain syndrome. Uh, and and then chronic fatigue syndrome eventually and you know a whole bunch of other syndromes <laughs> and POTS and MCAS and a bunch of other things and in, do you want me to tell the very end <laughs> like the the thing that they found at the very end or no um, I mean if you want to I know I, when I read <laughs> that part I was just like I actually I was happy for you that they found they found a reason but I was also really angry for you because there was so many times where you'd ask for that to be done and they never did. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's important to share actually, because like with a decade of having to, in a sense, defend your sanity in a medical room. And then the whole time there really was something there Um, for our listeners. I think that's important, you know, for advocating for oneself out there in the world. Yes. So, so one of the, so it's a little complicated because I don't just have one problem. Like I've got the pelvic Mm -hmm. pain and the colon doesn't work and the horrible chronic fatigue problems, et cetera, which, you know, in the book, we really go into some of the science of chronic fatigue and how all that can be related. But, and so I won't talk about that, but in terms of the pelvic pain specifically, I went to, I mean, over 150 doctors in the course of this whole time. And I'm, 140 of them either just sent me away or told me that I had a psychosomatic problem or that I needed to see a therapist or that I was being a nervous Nelly or that I was oversensitive or that I was a malingerer or that I was an attention seeker. I mean, on and on and on. I shouldn't laugh. I mean, it's it's horrible. Are you allowed to swear on this podcast? Yes. Oh, I was literally, all I wanted to say is yeah. like, it like fucking enrages me. Yes, yeah, it is fucking enraging. It's, it is mm-hmm. so like... Like I joke a lot and I laugh a lot, but it is largely because it has just been so bad. And so to think back on it is is a little bit difficult. But anyway, so all those doctors and over and over and over again, from the very beginning, I asked them if they would really explore and look in the original area where it had this like mishap mm-hmm. with the serologist that was so obvious that like there was a before and after with this guy and they were like well but you had problems before that you had a UTI I'm like yeah a UTI is one thing this is completely different and so and and they did do at the very very beginning they did it's called a transvaginal sonogram they they put this like 
device inside of you. And it showed a little uh, abnormality on the left side of the vagina, which is where I was describing all this pain. And over and over again, like when that first came up, I have all these emails from me to doctors and to other people saying like, hey, this is a thing. Like, what, what's this? Like, can we, can we look at this? Can we, that's gotta be it, right? And everybody's like, oh, you silly. Like, that's nothing. That's probably, it's probably nothing. You know, it's, it's the thing that they say to chronically ill patients, like think horses, not zebras. Like that's what we, uh, you know, like it's the most likely thing is, is probably um, not like an outlier event. And so anyway, long story short, a short 15 years later, um, I finally, yeah, I mean, (laughs) unreal, like I can't have sex. I couldn't, I have one pair of pants that I can wear, like, just like can't have kids. Like, I mean, real, very real consequences in my life. And 15 years later, I finally, I got a doctor to, um, uh, send me to the, like the appropriate place. I had to go to like a special pelvic pain hospital to be evaluated for what's called a neuroma, which is a, a a growth that grows on a nerve or a set of nerves um, because of usually it's because of some kind of trauma to the nerve. And so a very common trauma to the nerves is uh, surgery, a surgical trauma. And when I'm reading about this, because the guy that emailed me about it, it's like, it's caused by trauma. Uh, it causes like horrific pain. If left untreated, uh, the most common thing that it will become is this thing called complex regional pain syndrome, which is what I have and had been telling everyone the entire time. And so anyway, so I go up to see this doctor. He under anesthesia, he does the procedure and I come out of anesthesia. And at this point I've had like, I mean, dozens of procedures. And so I just immediately was like, it's nothing, right? Like you didn't find anything. I get it. It's fine. And he's like, Oh no, we, we definitely found it. He was like, it's so big. I can feel it with my hand. I was like, so they found it actually, it's not technically a neuroma. It's a big mass of scar tissue. It it functions in exactly the same way as a neuroma. Um, And it's a big mass of scar tissue entrapping like five different nerves in the pelvic floor that had damaged all the nerves, the blood vessels, the lymph ducts, and had just been sitting there the entire time and was obviously the cause of all the pain and and what they you know think is that you know the original urologist he he missed the urethra he made what's called a false track he went into the left side of the vagina with the instrument and he hit the nerves and that caused a bunch of scar tissue to develop and basically like wrap around and compress the nerves which is like if that happens elsewhere in your body that hurts but when it happens in your vagina and the pelvic floor it's just compounded because it's such a sensitive area and so anyways long story short that's what was wrong <laughs> like that's what was causing the horrific horrific pain and also for my colon to stop functioning is that that was the same thing it caused what's called a neurogenic bowel which is because of nerve trauma etc and so 15 years of being told that I was overreacting, that I was being uh, an irritant, that I was an annoying patient. I mean, just (laughs) only to find that actually I'd been like horribly injured and disfigured by this original doctor, you know, 15 years later. So that's just one example of, you know, the, the, the consequences of not believing patients when they tell you that they're horribly sick and just waving it away as if you know better. And that, that is a lot of what the book is about. Yeah. One thing I found really frustrating listening to your story was with, with that in particular, is like, you think that along the line of you being in that much pain with no obvious reason, I use like air quotes that the Western medical community could find. You'd think that someone before a 15 year time period had passed would have been like, well, let's just look and see what's it going to hurt to cross something off the list just in case. Yeah, and the fact exactly. that it took you 15 years to find someone that would do that. Just, yeah. And, and to be clear, like we did, they did do the right thing. They looked for it in the beginning, but then when they found it, they're like, well, it's probably not that. And instead yeah. of the many times after that, when I was like, well, but okay, but let's revisit that. What if it is? <laughs> like, can we look again? They just, uh, this is in the book, they said to me over and over again, because, 
so normally you just do that outpatient in the office and it's, but in my case, the whole point is that I can't do that outpatient in the office. It's too painful to just like put the device inside of me. So I had to have it done under anesthesia. And so I was like, can you just book an OR and let's just do this under anesthesia. And they were like, that is asking way too much of this, of the system. We'd have to book an OR that's way outside of protocol. We don't even know what the codes would be for that. We're not doing Mm -hmm. it. That would be an indulgence, like on a whim that you just think that that's what's wrong with you. And there's no evidence for that. And I'm like, but there is evidence. Mm -hmm. (laughs) The first test showed that there's something wrong. I'm still in all of this pain. Why? It's the opposite of an indulgence. Like, I, I can understand if they think it's something else, like if they were trying to figure out, like if they were hot on the trail of some other more plausible idea, but they weren't, they, they had, they were out of ideas and we're like, we really don't know what it is. Like, I really think that you just need to go back to your therapist and work on stress management. Et cetera. <sighs> yeah. It's, it's just so like enraging. And yeah. you know, when I was reading your book, as I said, just before we started recording, there were so many spots that I was like, oh my gosh, this is my story too. And like you said, because so many of us, this is the story. And um, I, in some ways, I guess was fortunate for my own health journey because I watched it all happen with my mother when Mm -hmm. she was sick and that like no one believed her or like listened to her. And I did also, she was um, a doctor she was an acupuncturist Mm -hmm. and she got her doctorate at Oxford university in England. So she was like incredibly intelligent. And so to watch the Western medical system, um, break down her courage for standing up for herself, um, really made me make sure that I didn't waver. And so there was moments, um, reading your book that I just wanted to like hit these doctors and cause it took years, but for me also before I had a doctor listen and I'll never forget being in my OBGYN's office and telling him like all these symptoms that I was having. And he put his hand on my knee and he said, it sounds like you have a real problem, you know, but it's not to me, it doesn't sound reproductive to me. It sounds digestive. I'm going to make a call. You need to see some, you know, a gastroenterologist, a specialist, but that moment of him putting his hand on my knee and he was male. And so to me, I already was kind of like guard up quite frankly, because he was male. I definitely had the perspective of like, how can a dude be an OBGYN? Like, we'll never get it, (laughs) you know, but, um, he, he, in that moment, believed me. And that was the first time that I really had seen that from my mother's six-year journey and my like three-year journey up to that point. Um, So it wasn't even as long as what you went through. And so with your book, when I just kept reading this happening, like over and over and over again to you, I was just like the string of like probability that that many people would try to dismiss you was just crazy. And it's, it's crazy. No pun intended. Uh And, (laughs) but so many people, that's what's going on. And, um, especially in the book, like you mentioned, um, someone giving you the diagnosis of fibromyalgia. And at the time it was like, Oh no, no, no. Don't tell other doctors that you have fibromyalgia because they're going to right away see you as crazy. Um, that still goes on today for a lot of those illnesses, like you said, the chronic fatigue syndrome, um, Lyme disease, all the, all the things. Um, Mm -hmm. yeah, uh, POTS, yeah, Mm -hmm. uh, building syndrome, all it's, it's this whole family, Ehlers-Danlos is, and that's, that one Mm -hmm. is in the news a lot recently. And it's the same thing. And it's, what's interesting is that I really do, it's endometriosis, polycystic ovary syndrome. Mm-hmm. It's very common to have all the same reaction from the medical system. And what is so fascinating to me is that they are like when you start to dig into the literature, it is incredibly common. They're clearly related to each other in terms of the actual like pathophysiology. Like they are clearly part of the same family of neuroendocrine immune problems, you know, in the same way that like heart disease and diabetes and obesity are like frequently comorbid with one another. It's the same thing over here. It's just like the neuroendocrine immune branch of the chronic illness tree. But that, but the difference is, is that the, the one branch, the heart disease branch 
you know, we, we take very seriously and the neuroendocrine immune branch, we just pretend because it's a lot of it is invisible. We just pretend doctors tend to pretend that it's completely made up. (laughs) And it's just, it's, it's very, and I really do think that that has to do with that. They, they really do. These problems really do affect way more women than they do men. I think that if the ratios were inverted, if it was like 85% of fibromyalgia patients were male, you would 100% see this taken seriously right at the beginning when we first started seeing these problems, you know, 30 years ago. And that, but because when it's women, there is, I mean, this should not be a surprise to anybody. There is an incredibly long, robust tradition of disbelieving women when you can't, you know, when you don't have hard proof to say like, here's what I'm saying is true. It is incredibly common to uh, tell women that actually they're just... Hysterical. Yeah. Yeah. The hysteria, you know? Yes. Yeah. I mean, it's not like the idea that we're so far away from like our long history, 6,000 years of sexism, like is ridiculous. Like when people, cause I've had so many people say to me, they're like, Oh, do you really think that's still a problem? I'm like, when? yes. <laughs> I mean, what do you, what do you think? Like, Oh yeah. Uh, we're seeing it in the news every day. And mm-hmm. in fact, I just saw like a little meme thing today that was, um, talking about like coronavirus right now of, oh, you know, men don't like the government telling them what they have to do with their bodies. And then it was like women being like, oh, first time guys, you know, <laughs> especially when like, what, what are you being asked to do? Stay inside like, mm-hmm. like versus like everything that women are asked to do. I mean, it's just yeah. it's crazy. So. Mm-hmm. I know when you mentioned in the book, the the stats that like 80 to 70% of chronic of mysterious illness diagnosis end up being in females versus males. I was like, it's that big of a difference. Mm -hmm. And I guess like kind of when I thought about it, most of the people that I know that have chronic illnesses are female, but I also kind of wondered if that was just like the circles that I was running in being a female myself, I was just attracting other females, but just having that statistic out there, I was like, Oh, that's obviously a problem. There's something going on. Mm -hmm. And just the way that you broke the research down and like how women weren't included in all uh, medical testing until like 1991. I was like, yeah, clinical what? trials. <laughs> yes. That like blew my mind. I literally, after I read that, it was like the next day and I was driving around town with my son and he's going to be 12 this summer. And I was like, Shannon, can I tell you something about like women these days? And I like told him <laughs> all about that. And I was like, that's like only 30 years, you know, that the female body is being like tested on taken seriously take and yeah and it was just um that was like that blew that was mind-blowing and they they tested on women some before that but it wasn't until 1991 that they it was required that you had to like really attempt to achieve some kind of parity but it's still really bad in that way like it's still there's a major disparity I actually have this good pain doctor right now she prescribed a medication it did not go well for me. And, and normally when I like react poorly to a medication, my doctors who are usually male say like, they get irritated with me. Like, Oh, of course you're so quote sensitive to it. Like <laughs> really annoyed with me. And then I feel like ashamed or annoyed with them. And it's just this horrible situation. And, and so I went back to this doctor and I was so ready for that dynamic to play out. And I was like, yeah, I, I, I was like almost apologetic. I was like, it, it went really badly. And you know, I don't know, maybe it was something that I did. And like, and she was like, hold on. First of all, do not apologize to me. She's like, you're the one that had to deal with the fallout of that medication that I prescribed to you that didn't go well. She's like, second of all, don't you know that most medications are tested on, you know, white middle-aged men? She's like, so if it isn't working for you, the higher probability is not that you're an oversensitive, you know, hypochondriac. It's that you just have a different body and we need to either try different titrations of the medication or maybe that's just not the medication for you and that's fine. And I was like, yeah. (laughs) What a difference I'm sure that made to be like validated and heard. Yeah. And to not, um, because like, I talk about this a little bit in the book, I have learned to speak up for myself better at physicians, but I will say that it's, if it's a doctor that I need to keep seeing, like, and I really need their help, it is a lot harder to like 
push back against somebody. And so you want to be as like well liked by that person as possible because mm-hmm. you you need them. If it's somebody that I'm I feel that I'm I'm not going to need to work with them in the future or that or that they can take it if I push back, then then I'm a lot more comfortable with that now. But you really are in this like really difficult power dynamic where they have all the power and you really need them. And so it's very difficult to be like to 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 talk back essentially because it just mm-hmm. it frequently will boomerang back on you, especially if you're really sick and like in just such a weak vulnerable place and that's that that's that is why it's even more incumbent on it's on doctors (laughs) to be to take as much responsibility and to be able to be as self-reflective as possible regularly because they have so much power and that means they have to have an even more responsibility to make sure that they're you know wielding that properly absolutely um it's really interesting that it makes me think of, um, we did an interview with a doctor named Dr. Selvi Vasudevan, and she is an IB, she has IBD, she has Crohn's disease, and she's also an MD, and she got her um, diagnosis when she was in college and when she was young, and so she really talked about the gift that that was for her because she was experiencing being the patient and mm-hmm. the doctor, and then other doctors that she was going through her clinicals with and such who like had a hard time listening to the patients or believing, and then she could offer that patient perspective to them. And I almost wanted to cry during that episode because I was like, that is a gift with a ripple effect. Because like you said, other doctors who maybe haven't experienced what's going on and you have to like make yourself amiable in -hmm. order to remain being heard because they have a hard time being empathetic or compassionate you know, it's, it's just, it is such a difficult dynamic and one can understand why, you know, especially like you said, someone that you need to keep working with, that you have to try to maintain a good relationship. And, um, and then on the flip side, it's like, I, I had a doctor who was like horrible bedside manner and really aggressive. And I like found myself completely shut down and resistant to like anything that she was saying. And I didn't trust her and I didn't believe her. Mm-hmm. And I knew that that wasn't good. And this was in the very beginning of my diagnosis. She actually is the one who gave me my diagnosis, but I found myself right away, like distrusting. And so I found another GI and where I was living, there was only like two in the city that I was like, I'm not going to listen to this one. And so I need to try the other one. And I was very like, pushy about it. Um, you know, even the receptionist of like the new doctor was like, well, they're not seeing any new patients. And I was like, I don't care. You need to get me in, like find a way to get me in like PA. I don't care. I'm getting in. Mm -hmm. And so that's where I say, it's like, I, I watched so much of my mother's journey and her, um, being defeated by the system that I've worked really hard to not let that happen. And sometimes I'm almost, maybe even like overly aggressive. But then there's times that like Chelsea came to an appointment with me and I was in there essentially like begging for help, you know, begging for something and to be Yeah, you, you didn't seem aggressive at that appointment that I went to at all. You, you definitely no. were like, what can we do? Yeah, and that was one of the times of being really sick. Like you said, Sarah, when you go in and you're just incredibly ill and you are just searching for help from these supposed experts. Um, and so- I know that uh, I think Chelsea was going to ask there you you did so much research going into your book. I mean that was something that I wasn't expecting going into it and I loved it and I was like fascinated in horrible ways and in wonderful ways about, you know, all of the research and the facts that you show and um how that must have been hard firstly to find a lot of that information because there is so little information still about chronic illness particularly mysterious illnesses like you said Mm -hmm. and so can you walk us through that process a little bit and how easy or hard was it to find sources and how much of the connecting did you have to do yourself Uh, that's that's like a lot of questions (laughs) all of it yeah so so basically the, the research part of it was definitely like the most difficult part. The memoir part of it is, has always been sort of the easier part for me to write. And the research, because 
I had sort of a, actually a different concept for the book when I first started. I was really just going to write about gut health and I, and because I because in the very beginning I like learned about that and I was like oh, this is so fascinating and there's not very much this is way back this is like in 2006 and I was like there's like nothing about this in popular literature and so I'll I'll write a book about gut health and it it was it was not setting out to like give sort of like a theory of everything for all of these different problems. It was really just to talk about how gut health might be contributing to some of these problems. But then, and that's actually when I sold the book, it was like, I sold the book and it was basically a book about gut health and about people like me. And that was in 2010. <laughs> and the book was due uh, 2011, which tells you something about how hard it was for me <laughs> to write the book. It's, it was, uh, I think they told me it was like they've never had a book turned in later than my book. <laughs> so it, it was well worth the wait. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, a part of that was the research was very difficult, but part of it, I was just really sick throughout all of it and got and went into some really just had to stop working on it for a couple of years. So I started with just looking at the microbiome, but then it just became so clear that I wasn't just talking about the microbiome, that there were, and I wasn't just talking about chronic fatigue syndrome and fibromyalgia. I, I was trying to figure out, well, how does, how is Lyme related to this? How is Epstein-Barr related to this? How's mold ailment? Like what, <laughs> how can you put all of these things together into a cohesive theory of everything, which I, to and you know, I'm somebody that's a little skeptical of like trying to, <laughs> trying to come up with a theory of everything because sometimes I think that can be over general and over broad and but at the same time it's just was so clear to me the more scholarly articles that I read the more books that I read the more patients that I interviewed that this is number one obviously an interconnected family of problems like there's just no there's no way to get around that that which is not how you frequently like have the information come to you like you'll get your one diagnosis of like POTS or of Ehlers-Danlos and then you just learn all about that and and maybe write a book about just that and from where I sit it's like well yes there's important things to know about that particular condition but what I'm interested in is that there's this whole huge family of conditions it's like a big kind of leaky boat that's all sailing down shit river together and so the so I wanted to see what research there was to that was looking at all of this collectively together and the, the that's what I mean and in terms of putting it together there's actually very few people like I've for my own part, I really stitched together like a theory that I felt like hung together. And then really in the last five years have found other people who are pretty prominent who are also saying the same things. And that's been very uh, affirming to me because it makes, because I was just like, I didn't even feel comfortable publishing because I was like, I'm not going <laughs> to publish a book that's like, here's what I alone think. And I really wanted it to be to at least be in the company of other people that I respected. Um, and, but there have been more and more people that are, you know, it's, I think it's too complex to kind of flesh out here, but it's, it's just basically that a lot of changes have been made to, to the diet and to the microbiome and that these are essentially setting up these bodies that are kind of primed to come apart uh, neurologically, immunologically and endocrinologically. And so you get, a tipping point where people start to develop all of these other related neuroendocrine immune problems. And so, um, but it took a really long time to kind of stitch that together. It really did feel like <laughs> with your corkboard and the red string and trying to like bring down like an international crime syndicate, like it just like feels like there were a lot of times where it really felt, yeah, just like I'd, I had taken on too much and that it was, crazy or that I was wrong or that I was just out on like the skinniest possible limb and like hoping that I was correct. But honestly, as time has gone on, I just, I do feel that the research really does corroborate, not that exactly everything that I think is correct, but that the, the, the broad outlines of what I'm talking about and what some of these other researchers are talking about is the best way to think of how these things all hang together. Absolutely. I mean, definitely in like various books that I've read by functional medicine doctors and such, it is a similar concept, but you're right. It's only in the last like five years or so 
Yeah, I remember and, when functional medicine, like the red books, obviously in the book, but like I hadn't there, I had never heard that term before. I somebody sent me something about functional medicine, and I thought it was like physical therapy, and I was like, I'm not going to read that. And but then I did start reading about functional medicine. I was like, oh, this is. This is that's what I was saying. That's mm-hmm. <laughs> like, oh, this is this is really helpful. And a bunch of people who are all really smart and exactly as you just pointed out, the, the unifying characteristic of all these people is that they're all people who have been sick themselves. And so that that does give you a completely different perspective and ability mm-hmm. to see things and empathize and believe all of these patients and start from there, just start from belief instead of starting from skepticism, which is, I think, what a lot of scientists and researchers think that that's like the, like the appropriate scientific pose is to be constantly skeptical. And, and, and in my opinion, of course, you need to maintain like healthy skepticism. But if you're skeptical of everything, or if you have like skepticism that's coming from a place of bias, but you're unconscious of that, then you're really going to miss a lot. And I really think that that's a lot of what's happening here is that there's a lot of unconscious bias against women and believing women when they Mm -hmm. say they're having these symptoms. And so they don't even research it. They don't even look into it. And then there's no data. And that's why it's mysterious. It's mysterious because they haven't researched it. It's not because it's like unfathomably complicated. (laughs) It's because there's no research. Not no, but yeah, I've read some interesting articles about um, like if a, if a male or a female is in the emergency room with abdominal pain, women have to wait some ridiculous amount of time longer to be seen than men. Yeah. And then like when reading that and you're just like, this is so unfair, you know, what the heck? we have extra organs that they don't have, you know, we should yeah. be heard. But then you see some of those things of like um, those cramp simulators that they put on dudes yeah. and they're like suffering. And yeah. I say that with like somewhat of an evil smile on my face, but it's more of just like trying them trying to understand a little bit of, you know, what it is like to be a woman. And so um, you're right. Like we do, we need to be heard and people who have had some form of experience going into, or even if there, there are male doctors who have had their wife had certain issues or something going on. I mean, that also can be so valuable. I think that that's right. I think that that experience, it just, there is such an emphasis placed on objectivity and how that's like the height of being a scientist. And I just really disagree with that. I think that subjectivity of actually experiencing something for yourself of not being the cool rational observer that is not down in the muck of the experience of the thing, Mm -hmm. being subjective has a lot of value. Obviously you don't want to be too subjective. You don't want to be like so you know, closed in by your own experience that you can't understand the thing anymore, that you're, you're not far enough away. But, but I think that we really overvalue the, uh, the, the, the opposite, the objectivity part of it, and that you really need to be able to at least be able to, this is what being empathic is, is to be mm-hmm. in the experience of another person. And that's an incredibly valuable skill. I would say chiefly for a physician, <laughs> you yeah. like, that is like, to me, I always think about this, like, you know, every job you need skills. And it's surprising to me that empathy does not seem to be like a, a necessary skill for doctors anymore. And that to me is like seeing like your tax accountant and they're just like, yeah, I'm not very good at math. <laughs> like, I'm sorry. <laughs> and you're like, wait, what? Or like a trial lawyer. And they're like, I am so afraid of public you know, confrontation. It's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Then you should not be in this field or if you're want to be like a man or woman of science but you're really bad at empathy and are not interested in developing that then maybe you should be in like the research fields or something that where you're not interfacing with patients and other people. that's such mm-hmm. a one that's such a wonderful point one of the things that we wanted to bring to light with Chelsea and I's show because mm-hmm. Chelsea doesn't have a chronic illness mm-hmm. and I do but that she like right from the beginning she'll she believes, you know, like whatever my experiences or her own clients that have come in. And when she and I talked in the very beginning, I was like, people, us boonies, us chronically ill people Mm -hmm. need to believe that there are people, you know, like you, like her, Chelsea, out there in the world, because we're so often not believed. And that is um, really something that we have 
wanted to um, try and bring awareness, I guess, with our shows because, yeah, they, I, I have experienced mm-hmm. majority of um, people who have not had their own experience with pain or an illness or, an, you know, a disability or an injury are um, less open to just being empathetic or believing what you have to say. And so to find people who do just believe you right away is really nice. And to have, I really, I agree with you. And to have like your show and to have like somebody be an example of that for other people, Mm -hmm. I just feel like it's so important in the same way that it's nice to have other chronically ill people speak up and, oh, I could speak up too. I think the same is true for healthy people to speak up and to be empathetic in public and to be like, believers in public, I think really is inspiring to other, other people. It's like, Oh, I, I actually can do that. <laughs> I could be mm-hmm. that in my own life. Yeah. So yeah, Chelsea, know. you're so important. Oh. Yeah. You're so important. <laughs> <laughs> I know Cassie and I have had multiple conversations about like what she's feeling, what she's experiencing, because I want to better understand that. And then I want to find ways of how can I communicate that to other people without chronic illnesses mm-hmm. so that they can better understand it. Like I know anytime I get sick with just a cold or a flu that I know I'll feel like crap for a few days or a week and I'll take away from that. But I know that that feeling that I'm having for maybe that short period of time is ways that maybe Cassie or you or anyone else with a chronic or mysterious illness is feeling like daily and probably on a much higher level than that. And so one thing that I love about your book is that it gave me a really deep insight into what the nasty cycle can look like of how constantly you work ignored by doctors just had the cycle of like yeah you're starting to get better yeah it's getting better mm-hmm. oh shit no it's not never mm-hmm. mind and I just it you shared it in such a beautiful way in your book of I really felt that and it's kind of I think I know I want everyone on the planet to read this book because I think I know all the doctors need to read this book. Everyone needs to read it. Doctors need to read it. Healthcare providers need to read it. Healthy people need to read it. People with illnesses need to read it because I think that it's something that impacts everybody. And I know reading your book, since you talk about that, there's lots of things that can contribute to the development of a mysterious illness, some being um, unhealthy gut health, um, microbiome issues constantly stressing out your body and just not taking care of yourself. And so like that, that really inspired me to like, okay, well I should take better care of myself. Mm. And cause I really resonated with the fact that like you were a go, go, go person. You were always doing something. Rest was not something that you did as you were growing up and reading that. I was like, so does that mean that I could be like, and I say could, cause everyone's a little bit different. Like I could be one traumatic experience, one illness away from tipping the scales. And I was like, Oh, that doesn't sound fun at all. And it kind of, it inspired me to like, okay, let's look, we have one body. How, how can we take care of it better in the way that's best for us? Yeah. And I just think that that's so, that's so important. And it is this thing that I think we've just grown up in such a strange time because, you know, (laughs) eating real food is not like some like health nut thing if you just wind the clock back 60 years like it's that's all there was it's like you didn't have to be a crazy health nut that's just what there was <laughs> and the same thing with like getting enough sleep the same thing with like just walking more it's just like not not 60 years ago but you know 100 years ago it's like just so many of the things that now you really have to make quite an effort to to do them but but we know that they're you know they're backed by science it's 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 obvious to you if you get more sleep or you exercise more you feel better like these are, it is what we've, the culture that we've created is the abnormal thing. It's not being like somebody that's like super crazy into health, but, but it feels abnormal to like have to go against the grain and to, mm-hmm. to do all of these health and wellness things. And so we're just in this really tricky moment where it feels like you're doing like the, I don't know, the cutting edge thing, but it's not, it's like the, the oldest thing. Mm-hmm. And so, and I think that, that I, I have to say, that's one thing I have really seen. Cause I, as I said, been working on this for 10,000 years. And in the last two years, I've really seen wellness just sort of tip into the mainstream. Like it's mm-hmm. like every, everyone I talk to, is just like, Oh yeah, I know all that. And I'm like, you do. <laughs> Cause like mm-hmm. for, for most yeah. of this time where I've been talking about that stuff, everybody's like, uh, oh, roll their eyes. And nobody thought that even doctors now, 
are like, oh yeah, that's common sense. I'm like, don't, don't even say that to me. <laughs> mm-hmm. It wasn't that long ago where it wasn't. I'm not saying that like two years ago. Don't pretend. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's that you're so right. So, um, in like 2006, seven is when, uh, well, 2005. Yeah. I think is when my mom got sick. And so from 2005 to like 2010, she was all about like coconut oil for her skin mm-hmm. And everyone was like, that is the weirdest thing. Why is she putting that like cooking oil stuff on her skin? And I didn't think much of it because she always did like, quote, weird stuff, you know? And then it was like so funny to just like five years later, it's like the new thing. And then when my son was little and I breastfed him for the first year and a half, and then he didn't go straight onto regular milk. We did coconut milk at first because Mm -hmm. my mom explained like the nutrition values and I didn't know, but Mm -hmm. I knew that. I needed to trust her. And everyone was like, that's so weird. You're giving him like coconut milk, you know? And then it's like five years later (laughs) that that was the thing. And so um, you're right. It's some of it is not necessarily like it's always been around. Um, And it it has been really weird to watch some of like the stuff that, you know, she would do smudging with Sage. And I was like, Ooh, my mom's such like a witchy poo or something, you know, like just everything is so weird that she does. And now it's so normal. Get away from that Sage. Yeah. 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 It's true. It's, which is, it is positive. It's a little annoying if you've been like promoting these things for a long time. Oh, I can't. I'm sure. (laughs) But it's, but it's, ultimately it's positive. It does make me want to like have a t-shirt that just says like, I'm right about everything. <laughs> right. <laughs> you should get to me. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Been there, done that, got the t-shirt. Exactly. Yeah. Just along those lines, like my dad is, you know, he's this character in the book or in real life who really goes from being like the most doubting traditional medicine doctor that just he was the first one to write me a script for Paxil all the way to the end of being like the biggest champion of Walmies and and really interested in like the science like he really he's like yeah you're totally right about the microbiome and about microglia and about you know all these things that I've been talking about for a while and it's been amazing to to watch that where I would like send him article after article and he would be so uh (laughs) non-receptive we'll say and mm-hmm. and then now he, I can't get him to stop sending me <laughs> his articles it's like too much for me to read <laughs> and um but but it's it just speaks to that um that the science really is coming around I think to a lot of these ideas that have been here for a while that have and it really to me it speaks to the importance of listening to patients and listening to clinicians who are having success, like before the studies have been done, like, again, it's just about believing, believing people and not, not, you you obviously can't believe everybody and you have to apply rigor in science, but it's important to not um, operate from a stance of just automatic disbelief of something that like is kind of feels like stuff you you wouldn't want to believe in like alternative medicine or wellness or whatever any woo-woo stuff like it's important I think for anyone to not have knee-jerk reactions on on kind of either side of the aisle of this to also not be totally skeptical of traditional medicine and and taking medications like that can become a real problem as well and so I think it's just really needing to be as open as open as possible uh, is really important when you have one of these problems yeah balance so Sarah, your book has obviously had a really big impact on both Cassie and myself, and we think that everyone needs to read it, but we would like to hear from you of who you think needs to read this book, like, and what you want people to get out of the amazing thing that you have created and poured so much time and energy into, and you can really tell how much love and care went into writing your book. Nice. <laughs> so, um, the people I think need to read the book or I w- that I would like to read the book certainly are Womies, which is a woman with a mysterious illness or Momies, men of mysterious illness, just and primarily just to have the experience of feeling like understood and feeling seen and feeling validated because that is just obviously just one of the critical missing pieces for people like us. And so I think this is one thing that that it can be it can provide that for some people. And I know that I really needed that as I was going along. Um, 
and it was really hard to to come by. So certainly for that reason. Um, and then and then I really think, and I, I've been heartened to see this already happening. I, I really think um, doctors and uh, people in the healthcare field. And I, I've had so many people write to me and said that they sent it to their doctor, and I'm like, that is brave. <laughs> I'm like, that's good because <laughs> uh, it's not, you know, it, it is not the most pro doctor book. I, I feel like I did my best to try to be as generous as possible, but obviously it's very critical in a lot of ways. And but. I've heard from a bunch of doctors and they all say the same thing, which is like all doctors should read this. And it's because the one, those people who are saying that they recognize this type of patient, they know exactly what I'm talking about. They know that this is something they see over and over and over again, that they didn't know what the experience was like. And they didn't understand any of the sort of like um, nation science, like the emerging science around this. Cause I, I'm the first person to say like, this is not like the definitive scientific guide to It's Like I, I, it's not, but it is, it's kind of some of the, the beginnings of people starting to understand these problems. And that's important to, mm-hmm. for, for doctors to understand that it's not, this, <laughs> this is not just an imagined problem. And it's not just like, cause I think that some doctors, when they believe patients, they're like, well, I believe that you're sick, but I don't believe that what you're saying is wrong is wrong. I don't believe that like POTS is a real diagnosis. I don't believe that post-Lyme is a real diagnosis. I don't believe that mold illness is a real diagnosis. So I believe that you're sick, but I don't believe it's the things that you think it is. And that's also quite damaging because, and it's also not founded in anything because they don't know. They're not, they're not steeped in the, in the science or in the literature either. They just sort of don't like it. And so I think so. I think I, I do hope that doctors and just people in the in the medical profession will read it, and at least some people will read it because I really think that that is if if just one doctor <laughs> abstains from telling one patient that she's made the whole thing up and is a hysterical monster person, that is a huge success, and that is that's a big deal. And so I that that's what I am hoping for. We completely agree. (laughs) We definitely feel like, I mean, we have, so we started, Chelsea and I both started reading, or I think, I don't know what Chelsea, like three weeks ago, we started reading the book, maybe three weeks or a month. And we've recorded quite a few episodes since then, like several a week, um, because we're in coronavirus time and it's been a great time to record. Mm-hmm. We've literally talked about your book on every single episode. Yeah, it's come <laughs> every, all the time. We're like, <laughs> every, single, every single interview that we do, we're like, we're reading this great book right now. That has something to do with what you're talking about. Yeah. And so, <laughs> and then to like, to my doctor, my counselor, like my family, friends, like, we totally agree that, um, and if one person can read it, I mean, it can make such a difference. And I, I want to shift tunes just a little bit because I want to make sure to ask you. Um, so with having the complex regional pain syndrome, I mean, that is like a hell of a diagnosis to get. I actually hadn't heard of it before reading your book. And I definitely like got on Google to learn a little bit more about it. And then I even started looking at some hashtags with it on Instagram to see people's real life stories about it. And especially when you talked about in the book that you couldn't use pain medication because it made you so sick. I completely relate to that. I haven't taken a pain pill in, I think maybe coming on to three years, probably now at least two, because they also make me like so sick that it's like, okay, is the pain going to be like bad enough that I just want to be nauseous and want to be throwing up, you know, like I'll have to pick between the two. So I related to that also. Um, what are some ways that you are able to cope with the pain? I know that might be a little bit of a loaded question, and I'm sure that over time you've found different ways. But um, for our listeners listeners out there who have um, chronic pain, I just wonder if there's anything that you could offer of things that have maybe worked for you, even mindset stuff. Pain is definitely, I will just be... Totally honest. That is the most difficult thing that I find to cope with because it's just, it is so encompassing that it's a lot of the stuff that you normally do to cope with like chronic illness stuff. It, it like blots those things out. Like you can't, it's like, for example, if you wanted to do meditation, it's very difficult to meditate when you are in just excruciating pain. So like complex regional pain syndrome, I always describe as it feels like if you had like a burn on your arm and then you like pour a little cayenne pepper on that, that's what it feels like 
all the time. In my case, it's in my vagina. <laughs> and then mm-hmm. I have to So it's really, it's super bad. And so, so for me, like, I'm just going to give my really honest answers. Uh, like anything that you can do to distract yourself in a healthy way, I think is, even though that's like not, that is not like what my a yoga teacher would say, but I, that is actually in real life, that is actually what helps me the most. So sometimes that's, you know, the, the least healthy of those is just TV or something like that, watching some show that's very engrossing and doesn't make me feel bad about humanity. Um, but also things like, like I'm better than I used to be in terms of the fatigue is like, I'm not bedridden anymore. And so things like, um, uh, gardening are actually like incredibly, incredibly helpful to me, like not heavy gardening, light gardening. Um, that's one of those things that I had heard about and I was like, yeah, 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 whatever, whatever. And then I started gardening and it like genuinely affects my, just my overall, like level of, I don't even know how to describe the exact emotion I have of like response to being in pain all the time. It's some mix of like depression, anxiety, the sadness, like it's a, it's a, a, a bad feeling and gardening really alleviates that for me pretty, pretty well. And so that's something. Um, and then one of the biggest things is just friends. It's just like having like really strong social connections like that and being able to talk to them and, and, and them really knowing that I really need to like stay in close contact with them. And like that, that, cause I think a lot of times what happens with chronic illness, if you, especially when you get really sick is that people start to pull away for a variety of reasons. They are afraid of illness. They don't want to bother you. They're like, well, she's dealing with so much. I don't want to like add to her plate and be a burden. There's a, there's a variety of reasons people pull away. Um, and so I have found it's really important to like, let people know that you do not want them to pull away and like X, Y, and Z are the following ways that are the best for you. So like one tangible example is I use this app called Marco Polo. Do you guys know? Marco Polo? Yeah. So Marco Polo, I really like, cause it's like, you get to actually have like the the positives, like whatever dopamine, serotonin of like seeing your friend, I feel like is really helpful, but you're not like a, you're not captive to the actual conversation. Like you, mm-hmm. if you're tired or you're not feeling well, you can pause or you can like play it at, d- at double speed. <laughs> I have one friend that I do that to a lot because she has really, really long, long messages. Um, but so I, I really like that app because it, it really makes me feel connected to my friends, but I don't, uh, it doesn't take up too many spoons. And I like that. Yeah, that's really great advice um, to share. And I mean, I guess advice, I mean, maybe just more like experience is the right mm-hmm. word rather than advice. Um, because it is so individual of the things that you do to like get through those moments. Distraction, I agree. That's something that I definitely use and have to have connecting with friends. Like I've been in moments where I'm in the bathroom and I'm in like so much pain and I've got my elbows on my knees, which then means I can't feel my legs. (laughs) And I'm like cradling my face in my hands, just sobbing. And I'm just like, how am I even going to make it to tomorrow? And I will sometimes call a friend and just be like, I can't actually talk right now, but I'm in so much pain and I need to like know that I'm going to get through the next hour. And um, so yeah, we all do need to do, we, you need to find the things that help you get through. And so I love that you have found gardening as just a way to like make yourself feel happier and yeah. feel relief and feel enjoyment. And it kind of goes into some other episodes where we've talked about um, the importance of delight and pleasure yeah. yes. in your daily life and experiencing that and how much more you can cope with the really hard parts of life and living and being in your body when you can experience delight and pleasure. And that can be from so many different things. I talked about it being from reading and gardening is a wonderful one. I mean, Mm -hmm. connecting with the earth and watching something grow and the green and fresh air. And yeah, thank you for sharing that. Yeah. And I do think this is something I'm sure you've talked about this, but like, there's a lot of like we get, we get fed a lot of negative messages around pleasure and about like doing things like that. It's too indulgent or like anything uh-huh. I think you just must disregard like any messaging that you've internalized around that because like, and I, I get I talked about this a little bit in the book, but a lot of times 
that is around stuff that is quote feminine. But if you were doing like things that were like masculine that were pleasure <laughs> pleasurable to you that were like, I don't know, like going to play golf, it would look good for you. You know, <laughs> like yeah. yeah. Whereas if it's like doing something that is more quote feminine, it's like, oh, that's so indulgent. And it, you know, so it's so I think it's really important to to like honor the things that bring you pleasure and that they're completely worthwhile and that you should be doing them because they're medicine they make a difference to you yeah it is totally medicine I completely agree well Sarah it has been amazing talking to you I could talk to you all day I know I love your book (laughs) I love everything you have to say we both said like like yesterday when we were working a little like finalizing our outline and stuff we were like okay we need to like not talk for three hours (laughs) right Chelsea we're like we need to rein rein in our all of our like excitement about everything (laughs) well it's so wonderful talking to you guys too so I really appreciate it well so we have some exciting news for all of our listeners uh we are doing a giveaway for Sarah's book. So if you take a screenshot of you listening to this episode and you tag us at the real spoonies unite on Instagram or Facebook, you will get put into a drawing. Um, mm-hmm. and we'll have some more details on that in our show notes as well, but we want, we, we want everyone to read this book and we are going to make sure that at least one of you gets a copy in your hands very soon. So, yay. Other than that, Sarah, where can people find you if they're wanting to either um, kind of just get to know you a little bit better? I know you're also a musician and you've got your own music that you put out there or they're wanting to buy your book. Where can people find you on the internet? On the internet, the best place right now is sarahmarieramey.com and you can find the book there. You can also find links to Wolf Larson. Wolf Larson is my, the musical person than I am and uh you all of my handles are either Sarah Marie Ramey on Instagram or Twitter or Wolf Larson Music uh on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook and we'll put all those in the show notes too Mm -hmm. well thank you so much for your time Sarah like I said you your book is amazing talking to you is amazing and we just love the information that you've been able to put out into the world bringing awareness to mysterious illnesses, the challenges you go through in the healthcare system and what people can kind of start to do to get out of maybe the very scary, terrible hole that they may be in. Well, I love you guys. You're fantastic. I am so uh, in admiration of what you're doing and I'm so glad that you had me on. So thank you. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Please write us a review to help us reach more people like you. If you'd like to connect with Cassie and I, you can find us on Instagram at The Real Spoonies Unite. You can also join our private Facebook community, Spoonies Unite, or you can visit our website, therealspooniesunite.com, for all sorts of resources and to stay up to date with our current projects. And don't worry, you can find all these links in the show notes below. Thank you to our wonderful Spoonie patrons for all your support, and you can become one too. That's right. All you have to do is go on over to patreon.com slash Unite, and you can get all sorts of extra goodies like videos of our episodes and more. Any support is greatly appreciated. It helps enable us to create more content for all of you, as well as make this podcast sound better and better. Thanks for listening. We can't wait to be back in your ears soon.